Well, we are um, getting very close to our Thanksgiving holiday, and since we won't be together Wednesday evening, I definitely wanted to focus today on uh, being thankful. And today, the title of our message is Thankful for What We Don't Have. Thankful for what we don't have. Um, I know that this year has been a strain, let's say, to least on on our um, hope for the future and uh, with the elections and all the stuff going on with that, so close to Thanksgiving, it, it's really hard to pull out of some of that muck and mire, isn't it? You know, I, I've, I hear people every time this year, man, where did the year go? Where did the year go? Here we are sitting with just a little bit of time left in November going into December. And, you know, already the stores are filled with Christmas decorations. I'm getting amazed year after year how quickly they put out whatever it is for the next season coming. You know, it, it's like we didn't even, uh, we didn't really even get it's Easter over it seemed like. All of a sudden there's Halloween decorations. Like what in the world is with that? But, um, you know, Christmas decorations going out well before Thanksgiving. You can't really even celebrate the current holiday before the next one. Now, we don't celebrate Halloween in our house, so that one's just a skip for us, you know. But, but when we get to Thanksgiving, it's like, wow, we're putting up the tree before Thanksgiving. We're thinking about gifts and all those things. You know, uh, children are wondering what they're going to find under the tree, and mom and dad are wondering how they're going to pay for it. And uh, these days, Thanksgiving is basically a preseason holiday, something you do to get in shape for Christmas. I mean, even the biggest sales of the year are the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, you still have heartburn from Thanksgiving when you're out trying to shop. You're walking it off. And that's a shame because there's an art of giving thanks that uh, that separates us from the animals. There's more than that that separates from the animals. But, you know, um, we have that that German shepherd pup that we're still, uh, it's kind of a love-hate relationship with that thing. Uh, last night I tried to be nice and take him a warm blanket. You know, I know they're made for the cold and thought I'll stick in his house. He kept dragging it out and I came out there and he just mauled me. And, you know, I about lose my pastor and my Christianity with that dog sometimes because I had my cowboy boots, my pound, you know, I just felt like giving him a good swift kick. And I was like, Lord, help me have patience with this dog. But that dog doesn't really say thank you. Uh, he thinks he does. Jumping on you and mauling you, he thinks of saying thank you. And I would rather him not say thank you than to do that. But to receive a gift and say thank you is one of the noblest things a man can do. You know, the greatest uh, to, to, to love one another, to lay down your life for another. But, but when you receive um, something from someone, to say thank you. There's nothing trivial about it. To say thank you is to acknowledge that we have been given something we did not earn or not deserve. You know, even in leadership, if you're not thanking those who are serving, whether they're getting paid or not, you know, pretty soon you, you won't have anybody to thank. But to say thank you is to acknowledge that we have been given something we did not earn or did not deserve. Happy is the man who understands that, uh, uh, that of all of life, a gift the gift of God, and what life itself is, is an ultimate gift. For us to forget that the fact that we have breath in our lungs this morning, to forget about that gift and not be thankful for that, what a shame. We're not guaranteed, nor can we control when our life ends. So to forget to be thankful for life itself is a shame. The Bible says, in everything give thanks in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. So if we can't do anything else, we can be thankful. As someone has said, if you can't be thankful for what you have received, then be thankful for what you have not, or for what you have escaped. 
If you can't be thankful for what you received, at least be thankful for what you escaped. So with that in mind, I'd like to, to bring a special Thanksgiving message to you from Psalms 131. Psalms 131. Aren't you glad today that we have a short passage where you don't have to listen to pastor trying to, trying to work through hard words and, and uh, hard pronunciations? So this is Psalm of David. We know, we know, and maybe you don't, but you should know that uh, David was a poet and a musician. Some refer to him as the sweet singer of Israel. And if you read through the Psalms, sometimes you'll notice that nearly half of them were written by David. You know, he, he's really an interesting character when you think about that because David, uh, from, from his beginnings as a child, the great things that happened in his life, all the way up to being a king, but then to be a poet and a songwriter. I mean, he comes across me as a man who had many talents, who, who was just well-rounded and, and uh, well-versed in so many things. But the heading in most of our modern Bibles calls it a song of ascents. A song of ascents, so that means it was part of a group of psalms which were sung as the Hebrew, Hebrew uh, pilgrims made up their way up the mountains. So, so uh, when they're heading towards the city of Jerusalem, uh, for one of the annual festivals, they'd sing this. So when you're a kid going on a camping trip, you know, one thing we whistle. I don't know the words of that, but it seems like you're going on a hike. That's a song you sing. But, but in this case, this was more of a song that they sang uh, to prepare them for worship. Uh, so I would more equate it to maybe what the military does when they, they sing cadence songs as they're marching or as they're running. Uh, to prepare their hearts for what's ahead, to, to, to get in unison, not only in voice and heart and mind, uh, but, but in, the, in the same, what the words of the song, the meaning of those become their mantra. And so this is what they would sing. And 15 of these psalms are grouped together, um, if we look through numbers uh, 120 through 134, but all except one are fairly short. Exactly the kind of songs that you would expect a group of travelers to sing as they march along. If you have a very lengthy uh, song with lots of different verses, it's kind of hard to march along and to concentrate on where you're going, especially up a mountain. You imagine the terrain and those type of things. But these pilgrim song, psalms are like choruses we sing every week with the same purpose, to prepare our heart for worship. It's possible that you've never even noticed Psalms 131 before, um, I find it pretty beneficial to once in a while in my regular scripture reading, no matter if Psalms is my focus or not, to just read a psalm along. Just sometimes randomly, I just open and look at a psalm and, and then go back to the passage I'm reading because I, I believe there's some great truths and some encouragement in the psalms. But this only has three verses. So you might tend to overlook it as being not so important when they're so short, but but that would be a mistake because this little hymn by David is really a, a jewel uh, for us to learn. Charles Spurgeon said that this psalm is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. And that's something that you really have to look for when you're looking for wisdom. Is It doesn't always take a lot of words to give you a truth that will save your life. But these three verses in Psalms 131, each of them reveals an important quality for us to consider as we approach Thanksgiving. So really in this psalm, if you want to remember any scripture verse for this holiday season, for Thanksgiving, this Thursday, this is one to remember. Because in its short passage, it gives us three um, qualities that we should try to emulate through this season. The first of those qualities is humility. 
You've heard me talk about that. It was a while back the Lord laid that word on my heart just randomly one day. I, I heard the word humility in my head. I started thinking about how little we hear that word used now. How little do we hear the word humility used and applied? It's not really promoted, is it? But the psalm begins with these words, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Not many of us would begin uh, this prayer this way, our prayer that way. It sounds odd to our ears, as if perhaps David was bragging about his humility. And it's always tricky to talk about humility. I mean, if you were to say, I'm the humblest person you'll ever know, how, how did that come out for you? you? You've already made yourself a liar, haven't you? How do you know when you're truly humble? I mean, come to think of it, if you're truly humble, will you even know it? People that I see as very humble people, I doubt they even know that they're humble. I don't think it's something they set out trying to be humble. I think they set out trying to draw close to the Lord and the Lord brought humility to their walk. It has been said that humility is the virtue which when you think you have it, you've lost it. If you begin to even focus on humility, think about that boggles mind. If I even begin in this message alone, if we start trying to look at it from the wrong perspective of our lives, we've already lost it before we began. But it's helpful to know that the word for proud is actually the Hebrew word for high. In the Old Testament, it was used for high trees and high mountains, the word proud. It was used to describe King Saul who stood higher than anyone else in Israel, the word proud. It was also used of God who was said to be on high and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, the thoughts of man. And we use the word in the same way when we say, get off your high horse, Buster. I heard that growing up. Did you hear that? Get off your high horse. There's no merit badges for humility. You know, they don't give awards for that these days. Let's be very honest with ourselves on this point. We live in a culture that puts a very low value on humility. Pride is exalted. Pride is rewarded. Pride is envied. Pride is pushed. Pride is fought for. But humility uh, is forgotten. From the moment we enter the world, we're urged to get ahead, to climb the ladder, to, to look out for number one, to win through uh, through intimidation to prove our success by the car we drive the home we buy the clothes we wear and by the friends we keep it's all a rating system we're 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 pushed into from this world we're pushed in the very first beginning uh, of our understanding of culture is to get ahead now some would say well that's uh you know some that aren't believers in in creation uh would say well that's just natural selection in effect you know the strongest survive I'm sure you've seen those t-shirts that say, the one who dies with the most toys wins. And I always, I, I hear that and I want to say, so what? So what? Dead, dead people don't play with toys. You may die with all those toys, but you aren't taking them with you. You can't play with them when you're dead. So while it may be true that the meek shall inherit the earth, it doesn't seem to be happening as a culture for the USA. We all have felt it. I've heard people say they hate Christmas because giving gifts has become a game where your love is measured by how much you spend. It's a sad commentary on the way we live, that that's the way it's become. 
There is such thing as the curse of having too many options. We live in the Bible Belt. One of the, one of the biggest struggles for churches here that you'll never find in Wyoming is that people have too many choices on where they go to church. We, we have too many choices, so it becomes, we've talked about this a lot, it becomes a consumer mentality. If, if this church doesn't give me everything I want and I get disappointed in one area, uh, I can make that area big enough that I'll just move over here because this church will give me what I want. In Wyoming, where you may have to look at the budget and factor on another couple hours drive to the next church, it's not so easy. You tend to think, I better figure out how to get along with this church or I've got to decide that I'm going to tell God church isn't important enough to me to get through it. America has got to be one of the most status-conscious places in the world. But, while, but again, I, uh, there is such a thing as the curse of having too many options. David went on to describe humility in terms of how he looked at his own limitations. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. The Living Bible simply says, I don't pretend to be a know-it-all. And when David is saying these things, he's basically saying, there are many things in the universe that are far beyond my meager ability to understand. I don't worry about those things, and I don't try to figure them out. What I loved last night, I, I went over to get my kids. They had uh, finagled their way into my mom and dad's singing the, uh, that they have out there, with, and they do a lot of hymns, and uh, mom's got a piano in the living room, so they all gather around. And it's pretty much a, a, a separate church because they got their own sound system, and then they've got their order of service and, and food. So, you know, it's very Pentecostal. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I was sitting by uh, someone who goes to uh, Brother uh, Jonathan Watson's church in Bella Vista, and we were just talking about our appreciation for Pastor Jonathan. He said, you know, what I, one thing, he said, one thing I like about Pastor Jonathan, you can't get him to comment on some of the gray areas between, you know, uh, some of the doctrines that it's not a whether you're getting to heaven, it's just what we in denominations argue about. And he, and he says every time he gets asked that, he just smiles and says, you know, I'm just a Jesus guy. I, I'm just a Jesus guy. It's all about him for me, so I just really can't get into that. And I thought that's that really an, an art to be able to, to stay humble in that situation think, I'm not going to prove you wrong. I'm just going to stay out of that because I know where that's headed. But humility in this context we're talking about today is simply means that you don't run the world. You don't have all the answers. You know your limits. Uh, a professor I had in Bible college, uh, Dr. Doug Ose, um, he used to have us repeat this in class. He'd say, there is a God, and then our part was, and I am not him. Then we should try that out this morning. There is a God, and I am not him. There is a God, and I am not him. It puts a lot of things into perspective, doesn't it? You don't run the world. You don't have all the answers. You know your limits. And, and another thing uh, I like about um, um, Dr. Jim Blankenship that's been doing our men's Bible studies is he told us we should never try to interpret the Bible in more depth than the Scripture uh, just states in itself. In other words, be careful about digging yourself a hole where you start to try to interpret well beyond what the Scripture really gives us to interpret. And, and so we, we find ourselves in this uh, way of looking at the context here as, as really one that says, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm okay with not knowing everything because I believe the one thing is God is in control. He knows the answers. Yes, do we have to give an account for what we know? Should we be ready in season and out of season to, to share what we know? Yes, but, but sometimes we try to assert ourselves beyond, out of pride, what God allows us to 
to have knowledge of. The last one is a hard one, to know your limits for some people. Even the idea that you have limits. It's hard for us to accept that there are limits to ourselves. It's sort of a trendy New Age type idea to talk about unlimited potential and untapping, uh, un- untapping the resources within. I remember in the office when I worked in Walmart corporate office, we, you know, it was very neat and uh, very um, popular for leaders to have uh, big posters in their walls and have a mountaintop, right? And it's to have something to fact of uh, uh, there's nothing impossible with, with a team effort or something to that effect. But this idea that, that we don't have limits, that everything that we need is within us and, and there's no limitation to ourselves. The truth is our potential is very limited. And the only untapped resources are the ones we discover when we come to the end and admit that we are limited, but God is not. That's why deathbed confessions happen. That's why people at the end of their life, when they realize, I can't hide this anymore, I can't shove it to the side, I don't want to die with this on my conscience, I'm going to get this out because I am limited. I cannot really, really hold on to the weight of untruth even at the end. So the 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 truth is our potential is limited and the only untapped resources are the ones we discover when we come to the end and admit that we are limited but God is not. Dr. John Hanna, he was a professor, he's a professor of a historical theology um, of, of historical theology at Dallas Seminary. He was given a series of messages uh, at a church on various contemporary issues. After one of the messages, a young man came up and asked his advice on what he should do with his life. He explained that he felt he had so many possibilities and he just didn't know which one God had for him. I just have so much, doctor. I just don't know which way to go. And Dr. Hannah said to this young man, that's the curse of having too many options. The man who thinks there are 15 things he could do with his life will probably do none of them very well. But the man who has only one option throws himself into it because that's the only choice he has. Dr. Hannah went on to say that for most of his life, his options have been limited, and that's why he is a happy man. And I think King David would uh, agree fully with him. Many times we, we weigh and think we have so many options, but really God has purposed one thing in our life. He's purposed for us to have one thing. We talked about this recently, about finding out what that one thing God wants for you. As, as Brian Jarrett, uh, one of my mentors, has mentioned, it's like finding your holy discontentment. That thing that keeps you up in the night. It was the thing that got Billy Graham so unsettled that he could do nothing else until he was filling stadiums with people who wanted to hear a simple message about the salvation of Jesus, that Jesus Christ offers us. It's that thing where people become great in the kingdom, you know, not in their own eyes, or not because they're not humble, but other people see them as great because it was that one thing that they had to do excellent for the Lord. Too many times we spin our wheels just looking at all these options, and I I believe sometimes half of them the devil's put in front of us as a distraction. It's the very thing I I faced when when I looked and I was at Walmart corporate office, I look at people rising up the ladder and, and the money they could achieve and all those things. I knew I had a call to ministry and, and I wanted that so badly. I wanted that call to ministry. But, but even then, the enemy is tempted to say, well, look, you know, you could be a, a good businessman in the church. Or just think of all the money you could give if you'd get up there. God, if you'd just make me a VP or you'd make me a whatever, I'd have so much money to give. Now, is there a place for those? Yes. God has called some to be, 
to be exactly that. But it wasn't for me. So I looked at all these options. Really, there's only one. And that's what I'm doing here today. The second quality this, that Psalms 131 reveals for our consideration is simplicity. Simplicity. Now, it's not a Christian song, but you know, one of my songs when I was wavering in my walk is uh, The Simple Man. I love that. I'm a simple kind of man. Some of you may have heard it, maybe not. Maybe you don't want to admit it. But anyway, <laughs> verse 2 brings us a, a second quality that's very useful as we approach Thanksgiving. It's the quality of simplicity. And I hope it's okay because I, I know this, the person in here today will recognize this conversation, but it's, it's stuck in my mind since we had it because it was really a Holy Spirit moment. But as I listen to someone who is, who is just delving out all the things that they were dealing with in life and just wanting, uh, wanting God to, to come in and answer, and as I listen, um, um, I, I remember the Holy Spirit saying in my, my heart to tell them, you ditch your plan. Ditch your plan. Have no plan. Because we, we tend to create this big elaborate plan for God and put it before him like, God, if you'll just do it this way, it looks and sounds like it'd be so great. But we have no idea what he may be doing or what he wants to do. Simplicity. It's the quality of simplicity, but, but I have, uh, we, we read it, it says, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This picture is one, and I, I, you know, maybe this has been great if Brent, Brittany and Vincent, if I'd hold, held off a week, I'm preaching this because they're, ex, they're going to be experiencing this. They have, and other parents have, but only a, a mother really can fully understand this. A child is born, and for a long time, he looks to his mother's milk as a source of nourishment. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All the needs are tied into that milk, and all comes from the same place. But when he is hungry, he cries, and mom knows exactly what to do. Her milk satisfies him, and, and, and back to sleep he goes. S- sleep, eat, and process. That's all that a baby has to worry about, right? Sleep, eat, and process. But the day comes when he has to learn how to take a bottle or to eat solid food, and that's not a happy day. He cries big tears, roll down his face, as his arms reach out, but his mother pushes them away. He fights, he pouts, he screams, All to no avail. But what has happened to mom? Someone who used to be my ally is now my enemy. Right? Can you imagine what's going through uh, that little one's head? And if mom has a heart at all, she probably cries too. Because from now on, things will be different. She will feed him, but it will never be again in the same way. It will never be as intimate as it was. When the bottle is over, when the tears have stopped, when, when he learns to eat with his brothers and sisters, Then the child comes, lays his head on his mother's uh, lap and not in order to be fed, but just just because he loves her. He comes because he wants to be near her. And here's the truth. Unless a mother weans her child, he will never grow up. He'll be a baby all the days of his life. And though it may seem hard and though the child uh, may misunderstand, if a mother truly loves her child, she will not stop until the job is fully done. God has really created this even in the animals who don't have the soul like we do that that he wants to commune with. So this is an innate thing that God created for all his creation that there would be this time where they depend on the mother and then there would be this weaning. 
when the job's finally done, the child no longer begs for that which is once found indispensable. Once he could not live without his mother's milk, and now he no longer needs it. What do we need most as a child of God? Childlike trust in God. To be weaned is to have something removed from your life which you thought you couldn't live without. So David is saying, I've come to the place where these things I thought I had to have, I don't need anymore. Now my soul is quiet and content. Most of us live on the opposite principle. We figure our contentment is on the basis of how many of our needs are met. And I have to say that sometimes I wonder in, in a church, and especially in Pentecostal circles, because we believe so much uh, and, and is true, truly should believe in the healing power of God, but sometimes our priorities get mixed up and it's all about what God can do to heal my body or to heal my financial problems and all that, when we should just be thankful that he's taken some things from us to learn to depend on him. That he's put us in the position. You know, think about Job, and I, I think about that often, about how his wife, you know, I don't believe she was an unbeliever. I believe that he had led his family to know the Lord. But even she gets frustrated and says, just curse God and die, and he still won't. He didn't know anything about the conversation between God and the, and the devil. But he stayed faithful because he understood that, that God may give, God may take away, but he's still in control. Unfortunately, it's a hard hard to reach a place where all of our needs are constantly met by that standard it's hard to ever really be content if contentment is measured by how much of the world world's goods you possess who can ever say i have enough it's like the millionaire i mentioned this before we know uh this old saying they ask the the millionaire uh you know the or the billionaire when he's going to stop working he says when i make enough money and then he's asked, how much money is enough? And the answer came back, just $1 more. And that's the way most of us figure our contentment. It's, it's our hearts we think, in our hearts we think, I'd be happy if I only had a new car or a, a new dress or a new husband or a new wife or a whole new life, a whole new situation. And since life is hardly ever that simple, we stay frustrated when we ought to be happy. So it's no wonder Thanksgiving just whizzes by. It's no wonder Christmas is a nightmare for some. It's no wonder we are never satisfied. Instead of being weaned from the world, we are wedded to it, or I should say welded to it. In some cases, it seems like it would take a cutting torch to separate us from that kind of mentality that, that what we gain in this life is where our contentment lies. In any case, our soul is anything but quiet, our countenance anything but peaceful. So you might ask, how does God wean us from the world? How does he do this? Well, I ran across a three-part answer from a Bible commentator uh, writing about a century ago. It said, first, he makes the things of the world bitter to us. The closer you get to God, the more thing, the things of the world are bitter. Second, he removes one by one the things on which we depend. He takes out the things that are not him that we're depending on. And third... He gives us something better. So he, he makes us uh, begin, he helps us to begin to, to have disdain for the things that would separate us from him in the world, um, the things at which we tend to find our, our, um, our safety and our security in. They're not him. He pulls those out from under us. And then, only, only then, is when he shows us there is something better. 
You know, I struggled for many years. I mean, this January would be five years for me here as pastor, and I've been in this church longer than that, as you know. But, but every time we started to think about building project, I started thinking, oh, but you know what? Uh, we got a place cheaper to rent than anywhere else. It's already set up, you know? It, we could go to three service eventually. You know, we, there's a lot of options. And I keep thinking that that is typically where I go wrong in my life before I was even in ministry is I start looking at what is the safer option when I know God's involved. When I know he's involved, I know that I should just step aside and say, okay, God, whenever you're timing, whatever you want, I'll do it. That's how I even yielded finally to, to uh, full-time ministry, saying, God, uh, I've got these school loans, and I have purpose to pay them off, no matter how I do it, pay them off, and then I'll go into ministry. But now I'm coming to the point, God, that if you want me in ministry, I know that there's people out there that would write one check and wipe this out. You own everything, and you have their attention, so I'm throwing my hands up. And you know what? He still helped us to pay it off ourselves, but he did it in a miraculous way. In very quick order, we were on the path to ministry. In the end, we find that no longer we need the things we used to think we, could, we couldn't do without. And our walk with God is stronger than ever before. At the end of a bloody battle during the Civil War, someone found the following paper folded in the pocket of a dead Confederate soldier, and this is what he had written. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I, was asked, for, I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity, then I might, if I, I was given infirmity, then I might do better, better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. I was given poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the, the praise of men. I was given weakness, that I might feel the need of God. I was asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. I was given life, that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I, among, among men, are, am most richly blessed. It's a great advance in spiritual understanding to be able to say, I got nothing I asked for, but everything I'd hoped for. And then the third, and quickly as I wrap up, the third quality in Psalms 131 that's revealed to us is integrity. Integrity. Verse 3 says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. The word hope in Hebrew means first to wait, then to wait expectantly. First to wait and then wait expectantly. The concept is very close to our English word confidence. An expanded definition would be to wait on something because you know the thing you're waiting for will happen because the person you're waiting on is trustworthy. I know God is trustworthy. He is always faithful. So when I wait on God, I know it's going to happen. I just don't know when. David says you have a choice to make. Either you choose to live like everyone else or you choose to wait on the Lord. Matt pretty much expresses where we're at in our culture right now. I either choose to wait on everyone else or I choose to wait on the Lord. Once a child is weaned, the apron strings have been cut. The child comes to rest on his mother's lap, not because he wants something, but because he wants to be near his mother. And in the same way, God weans us from our dependence on things of this world so that we will not be bribed into trusting, uh, that we will not be bribed into trusting on them, but trusting him. 
What credit is it for you to trust God because you have a mate, a house, a job, a happy home, a future, all the things we could list? What will you say when you lose your mate, your job, your house, your happy home? When life tumbles in, what then? As I said before, it's the same concept of that tube of toothpaste. We often find what we have stored up on the inside of us when the pressure's on and it's squeezed. What comes out is proof of what we've stored inside. That's what integrity is all about. It's choosing to put your confidence in God alone. It's believing that he has answers to questions you can barely understand. It's coming to the place where you don't measure your spirituality by your prosperity. It's finding rest in your soul because you discover that the things you used to crave aren't so important anymore. You know, I think it's very uh, much a, a humbling reminder when someone reaches out from my former employer who knows what I'm doing now, who knew what was going on in my heart my life then, and they begin to have trouble in their life. They don't run to the co-worker. They don't run to the boss. They don't run to HR. They may not be at a place where they know how to run to the Lord, so they run to someone who they know who does. And that's what each and every one of us have as a challenge to us as we interact with unsaved family members, with unsaved co-workers, is watch where they run when trouble comes. Are they running to the one they know who serves the one who has answers? There's a, a woman by the name of Lois Kaufman who wrote a letter after uh, the death of her husband and then two subsequent tumor operations she had. And this letter was written to Jesus and this was published in a, a uh, biblical bulletin it was a publication of a theological seminary in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And this is how uh, her letter goes. Dear Jesus, I've written a lot of thank yous lately, but this is my first one to you. Until now, I didn't appreciate your gifts to me as these past several months. Thank you for taking Don home to be with you. Now I'll never be concerned with what the future holds for him. His days are guaranteed. Thank you for giving him such a wonderful Christmas and thank you for making his birthday last Sunday his best ever. Thank you for putting me in the hospital three weeks after he died and showing me the way you could use his death in my life. I wasn't always sure how to approach others with the gospel, but now you have given me so many openings I can hardly handle them all. Uh, handle them all. Thank you for my most recent surgery and for the lessons it taught me especially for showing me how much I needed you. Thanks for letting me see what it is like to face surgery and suffering without you as I watch the difference in the lives of my roommates. Thank you for the lessons uh, Becky and Lori, her daughters, have learned from this. I could never have taught them the way you did. That's because of the great teacher you are. I can't wait to see what you give them on their heavenly report cards. You know, Jesus, I wouldn't have planned my life this way. In fact, I wouldn't have planned it. Uh, I would have planned it just the opposite. I would have sought to avoid death's knock. I would have ducked out on the surgeries and tried to pretend that Christians were, were kept well by you all the time. But I would have missed out on so much. The kids are sorry they couldn't be with their daddy on Father's Day, but we were glad he could be with both his eternal and his earthly and heavenly father this year. Oh, I could go on with this letter, but I could never cover everything I have to thank you for. So I'll send more, but for now, please accept this 
as a beginning. Gratefully yours, Lois. When you read something like that, you, you can only conclude one of two things. Either this woman has lost her mind or she has chosen to put her confidence in God alone. And that's the very choice we all face. A new way to count your blessings. There's, there's a lot to ponder in these three verses. And now, and now you know why Charles Spurgeon said uh, this psalm is one of the shortest to read but one of the longest to learn. If we were to go out with the, the idea that we're going to have this mastered by tomorrow, we'd set ourselves up for disappointment. Because humility and simplicity and integrity don't come easy. We need those three qualities every day of the year, and especially as we approach this Thanksgiving holiday, because I can guarantee you, you won't find it in the world. You won't find it at the after Thanksgiving sales. As people push and shove and, and make themselves more important than the next, no matter what that person's trials have been. I'm going to challenge you this Thanksgiving because it is, is typical sometimes in this time to make a list of what you're thankful for. But I'm going to challenge you to do it a different way. Between now and Thursday, since we're not having service Wednesday night, between now and Thursday, I want you to make a list, but not of the, the financial blessings, not of the things you have, but think through this year of the things that God maybe has taken in order to draw you closer to him. Think about how much closer your relationship is with him because of the things he's pulled out from under you to get you once again totally focused on him. I guarantee you we all go through that. You might be feeling like you're in a time of blessing, but I bet you when you think about it long enough, you'll realize there's some things that have left your life this year for that very purpose. It may be a relationship, an idea, something you owned, a personal possession, a promotion, or a new job. Or something that, that, has, uh, that was there but not now. And maybe it caused sorrow. Maybe it caused trials or strife in your life. But it may be something you fought for, you strive for, you live for, you work for. And when you got it, you found it wasn't important as you thought it would be. On your list of things which are quite good in themselves, most of these things on your list may not be anything you title as sin or evil. But they're just things that you had that now that they're gone, you realize God's sovereignty was there that he was showing you that you need to be weaned from those things that you might depend on him so be thankful for things you no longer have and that's what i want our focus to be this thanksgiving let's bow our heads heavenly father thank you lord that um, it may seem so opposite from the world's point of view to be giving thanks today for the things that we don't have giving thanks for the things that that could entrap us or distract us take away our dependence on you. But Lord, I'm thankful today for the things I don't have. I'm, while I, I appreciate and I was thankful for my job at Walmart and those years there of development, Lord, I'm thankful I don't have that anymore because now I'm fulfilling my call. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that, Lord, you didn't give me any more success than I did there because I might have amassed enough wealth, Lord, to to be distracted from ministry. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you bring humility and simplicity and integrity to our lives. That the closer we draw to you, the Lord allowing you to wean us from the things that we think we really need, but we don't. That you bring that humility and that simplicity and integrity into our lives. And God, we may not be able to judge the humility as it comes. We just pray that you see it. 
that you recognize it, Lord. That it pleases you and glorifies you. Lord, the simplicity may be easier to see as it comes to our lives, but Lord, let us be satisfied, Lord, when the simplicity comes, when you bring it. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit always convict our hearts to keep the integrity, the integrity that you've intended us to have ever-present in our walk with you. Lord, I just pray right now over those that are here in the sound of my voice this morning that this Thanksgiving day, they'll keep the focus on you. Lord, let the tensions and families, Lord, be gone. Lord, we pray that you will keep the vision from, from being there at the, at the dinner table. And God, you'll bring a sense of unity in our families, a unity in Christ. Lord, let those who know you shine brightly before those who don't. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you guys. And uh, since I won't see you beforehand, have a happy and blessed Thanksgiving. Love you.